The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. I'm your host, James Trepper, and on this episode, I am joined by Father Anthony Chicada from St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio. Father, glad to have you back with us. Happy to be here. Take care of a little house cleaning. This episode, as is the case for all our non-sponsored episodes, is free for the first five minutes to non-members. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit truerestoration.org. Go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. And on this episode, we're going to continue discussing a different angle of the Society of Pius V controversy with clergy, with orders, or affiliated with Archbishop Tuck. So, Father, perhaps to give a little little bit of background to our listener, I think it's important we talk about who was Archbishop Tuck, a little bit of history of him. Okay, well, he was a Vietnamese clergyman from a, an upper-class Vietnamese uh, family. His uh, family uh, was involved in the government of uh, Vietnam. Uh, in fact, his brother, No Dinh Diem, was the, the president of, of Vietnam. Uh, Tuck himself uh, studied, obviously, under the uh, old system. Uh, he studied in, in uh, Rome. He received a uh, doctoral degree in uh, theology from one of the uh, Roman universities. And eventually he uh, made his way up the hierarchy in uh, Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam, uh, surprisingly, was a uh, rather Catholic country. Because of the uh, influence of the French, religious orders did... Um, uh, very, very well in uh, Vietnam, and the Catholic Church was uh, actually quite vital there before the Second Vatican Council. So Tuck was eventually appointed the uh, Archbishop of uh, Hue. He was also named a, uh, a special delegate by Pius XII. He Pursued his, his apostolate in Vietnam. If you know anything about 20th century history, of course, you know that uh, there was a conflict in uh, Vietnam, sort of an out- outgrowth of uh, the Cold War, where the uh, communists tried to take over the country of uh, Vietnam, the whole country, with uh, through guerrilla warfare. Uh, in the north, eventually the northern part of Vietnam, uh, which included Tuck's Si Hue, uh, was taken over by the communists, taken over by uh, Ho Chi Minh. 
And Ho Chi Minh uh, conducted a, a war against uh, South Vietnam, which was the uh, pro-Western uh, part of uh, Vietnam, trying to take that over. Uh, the uh, president of, um, or one of the presidents of uh, South Vietnam, was uh, Tuck's brother, No Dinh Diem, and Diem, for some reason, fell out of favor with the United States uh, government and the way he was handling the war. So our uh, wonderful Catholic president, John Kennedy, uh, actually arranged to have the, the poor man assassinated. So No Dinh Diem, uh, No Dinh Diem's family, and the, the, the first, uh, I believe the, the uh, first name in the Vietnamese name is uh, actually uh, considered the real family name. So No Dinh Tuc uh, then uh, eventually fled uh, Vietnam and went to live in Italy. And when he was in Italy, he, he was living under rather reduced circumstances and uh, working in, in a small parish. And it was at that point that he got involved with the traditionalist movement. So that's a, a little bit of overview of his, his background before he came to the traditionalist movement. He was regarded as a good and responsible ecclesiastic in Vietnam, and he uh, eventually, of course, uh, because he was anti-communist, fell, uh, fell afoul of Paul VI and company, uh, because uh, Paul VI uh, rather consistently tried to uh, uh, make some sort of a, a, a deal in his politics with uh, the communists, which they call the Ostpolitik of uh, Paul VI. So that uh, uh, brings us, brings Tuck to Europe. He, he father had escaped the communist persecution and execution of his, I believe, three brothers mm -hmm. were all executed by the communists because he happened to be at the Vatican II Council at the time, is my understanding. So that, that was, I suppose, one good effect of Vatican II, at least for him. <laughs> it, it doesn't say much. If one of the, the, the best effects of Vatican II for a Catholic bishop is it helped to avoid assassination. But uh, I, yes, I had forgotten that part of the story. And and after Vatican II, he wanted to return to his see in Vietnam, and Paul VI, basically from reading his autobiography and other accounts, forced him into retirement. Uh, yes, and that that was his uh, was generally the the policy of uh, Paul VI that to make nice with the communists, he would uh, force out of office those prelates who had been anti-communist. And that's, of course, what he did in a very deceptive way with uh, Cardinal Mincenti in Hungary. So after Vatican II, what did Archbishop Tuck do? He was without a see. Where did he go after that? So he uh, functioned in a, a small parish in uh, uh, Italy, doing sort of a, a pastoral help out. Uh, he didn't have too much of a, a contact, uh, really, with the larger world at that point. He was living in, in uh, very uh, reduced uh, circumstances. And at that point, still, you hadn't had the um, great uh, emigration of uh, Vietnamese out of Vietnam that would come at the end of the Vietnam War, finally. 
So uh, uh, Tuck pursued his his uh, apostolate a small parish in Italy. And it's in or from Italy. He went to do his first, let's say, um, unauthorized consecrations in 1975, and those were to been in Palmer, Detroit. What exactly happened um, leading up to? him going to Palmer, Detroit. How did that come about? Well, Palmer, Detroit. Okay, well, at that point in uh, the history of the post-Vatican II Church, people were trying to figure out what to do about the post-Vatican II Church. So, because people correctly perceived uh, the problem with the changes, the official changes instituted by the Second Vatican Council. So you had the beginnings in the 1960s of a type of traditionalist resistance movement. You saw that in the United States, and you certainly saw that in uh, Europe with some of the first traditionalist priests in Europe, Father Koch, Father Noel Barbara, etc. So you, you saw this, this resistance to the uh, Second Vatican Council. Uh, some people in the traditionalist movement, at least a good number of people, turned toward uh, private revelations as a as some sort of an explanation for the situation in the church and there are many different types of uh, private revelations that were popular in certain areas of the traditionalist movement and these revelations tried to uh, explain somehow uh, what exactly was going on with with Paul VI. They tried to handle the question of uh, the Pope that way. Oh, there were many false seers uh, and many false visionaries at that uh, point in the early 70s in the traditionalist movement, and one of them was Clemente Dominguez Gomez, who was a uh, layman in uh, Spain who claimed to have uh, visions from uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And he was in northern Spain in a place called Palmar de Troya. So he had all sorts of, of um, uh, wild and unusual supposed apparitions, etc. So he gained a group of followers there in Spain and, of course, got no approval uh, because he was against Vatican II from the Novus Ordo establishment in Italy, or rather in Spain. So uh, he had followers in different parts of the world in the traditionalist movement. Uh, among them was actually one of the uh, teachers at Archbishop Lefebvre's Seminary in Econ, Switzerland. His uh, name was Revaz. He was a, a canon, that is to say he was a high-functioning or a, high, a higher-level clergyman in the diocese that uh, the SSPX Econ Seminary was located. And that was the Diocese of Sion in Valais in southern Switzerland. Canon Revaz, Maurice Revaz, I believe was his name, was uh, also the vicar general of the Diocese of Sion, and he was uh, involved in the diocesan marriage tribunal. He had a doctorate in canon law and so on. So he had a highly educated background. And Lefebvre, uh, since uh, Revaz was uh, sympathetic to traditionalists, Archbishop Lefebvre had him uh, actually join the faculty at uh, Cone. So he came to Cone and uh, taught canon law. Uh, Revaz, it seems, was also an apparitionist. He was very much into these 
private revelations as an explanation for the situation in the church. And uh, he had visited Palmar, Detroit. He had heard about their trouble uh, with the uh, Novus Order establishment there. And uh, he decided, well, he would help. He would try to get them some clergy somehow to come and to offer Mass. So he had heard somehow about Tuck, Archbishop Tuck down in Italy, so he went down to visit him and talked him into uh, at least coming to Palmer to try to investigate, to try to get uh, involved. Because, of course, one of the tenets of all of these revelations is that they were very anti-communist and uh, saw right, you know, communism as the Antichrist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so uh, Shannon Reva had a um, receptive audience in Tuck and tried to get him interested. Tuck in 75 went to, uh, he visited Ekon, Switzerland, and Reva also tried to get uh, Archbishop Lefebvre involved in uh, Palmer de Troia. But Archbishop Lefebvre told Canon Reva that, uh, well, uh, you know, if there's something like this, I'm already occupied, so Tuck doesn't seem to be occupied, so why don't you ask him somehow to get involved? And I believe as this was going on, I believe I myself actually was in a, uh, was in the Cistercian Monastery in the northern part of Switzerland where we had a, um, a community of, or a part of the community were Vietnamese students who were uh, actually, they'd heard about Tuck and actually were quite interested to to meet with him. And I, I believe that he come, uh, did come and uh, spend a little time with him at the monastery, even as I was there. So in any event, that's that was the initial connection. Uh, it was via the uh, Canon Reva and uh, Archbishop Lefebvre that uh, Tuck um, uh, got connected with Palmar de Troia. So... Obviously, if Archbishop Lefebvre sent Father Rivas to Archbishop Tuck, he at least, while maybe not giving a lot of credence to the apparition, obviously encouraged it in some fashion. And we don't know exactly what Father Rivas said to Archbishop Tuck when he went to get him, but it could have even been, hypothetically, upon the recommendation of Archbishop Lefebvre. Sure. Uh, It could very well have been. And, uh, you know, uh, Riva was an impressive uh, guy in terms of, certainly in terms of his background. And the fact that he was associated with Lefebvre at that point would have counted for something, because Lefebvre had, uh, you know, reputation for being a a traditionalist uh, in 75, and was well known as such. And this account is recorded by Father Barbara, directly coming from Archbishop Lefebvre, but if we go to the Society of Pius V, particularly the book, The Sacred and Profane, we get a very different story coming from Bishop mm-hmm. Kelly. To quote Bishop Kelly here on page uh, 49 in The Sacred and Profane, he writes, shortly before Christmas of 1975, a priest showed up, told Tuck that the Blessed Virgin Mary had sent him to fetch him and bring him back to Spain. In his autobiography, Archbishop Tuck said that he was preparing the Christmas crib on the vigil of Christmas when a priest whom we had previously met presented himself. Tuck wrote, he said to me, point blank, Excellency, the Holy Virgin sends me to bring you immediately to the heart of Spain to render her a service. My car is waiting at the door of the rectory, and we will leave right away in order to be there on Christmas Day. Bishop Kelly tells this ambiguous story, which certainly leaves the reader with the impression that 
Archbishop Tuck was swayed by this Joe nobody that shows up and runs off with him to do these consecrations like a madman. Mm-hmm. Rather than giving the account that Father Barbara had written down, which certainly seems more plausible that Tuck knew this priest previously, came to him on this recommendation of Archbishop Lefebvre, and these could be reasons why he consented to doing the consecrations at Palmer de Troyan. Uh, yes, and the uh, what we have, what you have there, is a typical way in which consistently uh, Father Kelly and then Bishop Kelly has operated with regard to these different issues. And I know this, you know, from personal experience that he will conceal certain things and uh, end up intentionally leaving you with a uh, with a wrong impression. And the contact there was, in fact. With Ravaugh came through the Acone connection, and he did, Tuck did actually uh, visit Archbishop Lefebvre in Acone and made the connection there undoubtedly with the canon Ravaugh. That is a fact that is left off the side, and it's not that Father Kelly didn't know about what Father Barber wrote, because he had seen all of this material uh, in connection with uh, our discussions in the Society of St. Pius V of whether we should get involved with the bishops who derived their orders from Archbishop Tuck. So he knew all about this, but uh, nevertheless, it's uh, swept under the rug. And I think to give our reader or listener a little bit more of a background, during this time, there also was the theory that there was an imposter, Paul VI, which people were presenting. And this seemed to arise that by the time you get into the middle 1970s, from all the accounts I've read and books, there seemed to be complete chaos and confusion to the tune that accepting that there was an imposter, Paul VI, seemed far more credible than accepting that the church was going down in flames. Uh, well, yeah, that that, that was uh, part of the a- atmosphere, and that's why so many of these apparitionists were so popular. But when uh, I was at a cone in the 70s, I remember seeing these books that promoted this particular thesis that there was an imposter pope, and that uh, Paul VI had been imprisoned in the basement of the Vatican, or had been slain somehow, and there was a replacement for him was a person who uh, had some sort of plastic surgery, and the way that you could tell is by looking at uh, different uh, the comparisons of photos of ears, that for some reason ears were very hard to fake, I guess. And so there were these books that would show you the ears of the real Paul VI and of the imposter Paul VI. So this, this was a standard, really was standard fare, for a good number of traditionalists in that particular era. So Archbishop Tuck went to Palmer de Troya, and what happened there? Well, there he uh, was convinced to provide them, Palmer de Troya, with clergy. And because of the supposed messages that uh, Clemente uh, Dominguez Gomez was receiving from Blessed Mother, Uh, This convinced Archbishop Tuck that he should ordain some of them priests and then some of them bishops. And after he had consecrated these men, the Vatican excommunicated Archbishop Tuck for this action in uh, September 1976. 
what did Archbishop Tuck do after he was excommunicated? First of all, the interesting thing is, uh, when it comes to the uh, excommunication, is an admission by the Vatican that the consecrations were valid, because the uh, law of the Church is very clear that that one incurs an excommunication uh, when it comes to the reception or, or the conferral of a sacrament. One uh, incurs the excommunication only if the sacrament is validly conferred. So I think that that is an uh, interesting point to be made about this particular episode, that they, they, by the fact that they issued an excommunication, that's an admission that it is is, uh, valid. It seems after the excommunication that Archbishop Tuck, and and within the, the months between the consecration and the excommunication, Palmer de Troya went... Uh, seemingly quite radical, and it seems that Archbishop Tuck had remorse for doing those consecrations. Uh, yes, it, it became too. I guess he realized that that it was uh, imprudent, really, to have done uh, what he did. So he expressed his remorse for that. And the Vatican lifted the excommunication, if I remember correct. Yes, that's right. Uh, indeed, they did. So that leads us to the next consecration, uh, which Archbishop Tuck did a, um, a few months later of uh, Jean Labarain. Who was Jean Labarain? Well, I actually don't know an awful lot about him. Uh, his name uh, sort of washed up in these discussions later. Apparently, this this uh, fellow was some sort of a uh, an ecclesiastical adventurer who uh, was uh, uh, had old Catholic. Uh, connections, and somehow he was presented to Tuck as a legitimate priest or bishop uh, who had uh, doubts about his his uh, ordination or his episcopal consecration. So the, the 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 story on that is is an extremely um, extremely fuzzy story, but naturally uh, Father Kelly and company interpreted in such a way to make the whole uh, episode. Uh, look as 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 uh, as bad as possible, but you have to you know realize in those days uh, it was a you didn't have the means of checking up on people that uh, you certainly uh, that you certainly have in our own time, and uh, it is easy to forge documents. It is easy to uh, if you're a clever deceiver to sell someone a story. Now, Bishop Kelly in the Sacred Profane often quotes uh, Jean Labre as a, quote, known homosexual who had previously consecrated by schismatic bishops at least three times and perhaps as many as five. Mm-hmm. So he constantly repeats this, uh, Jean Labre was a known homosexual. But from the internet research I've done and in, in reading different accounts, one, I find it highly unlikely that Jean Labore in the 1970s, which, although liberal, uh, was not very acceptive of homosexuals, would have flaunted that publicly. Yeah, and the thing is that known, I mean, known by whom? Right? That's my first question. Who knew it? Right? Was it on the cover of Perry Match or something? Or, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Vietnamese exile news? You know, how, how, <laughs> do, you, how do you become known? Right? Yeah. And maybe he was running around with the rainbow, Father. Uh, this even predated the rainbow, I think. So, you know, the nonsense is known by whom? Or this this uh, old, devout 
bishop with a doctoral degree in canon law, uh, you know, somehow knows about this and says that, well, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to uh, make you a priest or make you a bishop anyway. It makes absolutely no sense. It's absurd in my mind. But Father Jenkins claims that Father Barbara told Archbishop Tuck about Jean Labouret. However, according to Father Barber, if you actually read his article in uh, Fortes de Fide, he claims, or Father Barbara states that, quote, I personally never knew the Vietnamese Archbishop before the time of my two visits to his residence. And, quote, the first time was in March of 1981. So if Father Barbara didn't know personally Archbishop Tuck till 1981, and the consecration of Jean Labore was in 1976-77, four years before, I don't see how it necessarily would be possible that Archbishop Tuck would have known from Father Barbara, directly from Father Barbara's own account. Well, yeah, unless the, the, Father Jenkins and Bishop Kelly are positing the existence of some sort of a time machine you know, that, <laughs> that would allow this to take place. So, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, all extremely fishy. How could he know something like that, you know? <laughs> and, and actually, if I'm familiar, um, Jean Labouret was at least in contact with Cardinal Ottaviani in the Vatican at the time. So it's possible he even had letters from Cardinal Ottaviani or perhaps other connections that maybe gave him some credence that he actually was a Catholic. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, how people, uh, that's how people in those environments work, uh, that uh, having had, you know, uh, experience as a traditionalist priest over the years in dealing with uh, people who are a member of these, these minuscule old Catholic uh, operations, they will try to get some sort of a Vatican letter that, in fact, will give them credence in uh, one way or another, or they'll, they'll, they'll say that, well, my case is being looked into by the Vatican, and, uh, you know, here's a letter from uh, Cardinal so-and-so or Monsignor so-and-so. So it's a classic uh, old Catholic scam. But remember that Father Jenkins and Bishop Kelly are not interested in exculpatory evidence about Tuck. Uh, they're, all they're interested in is in stuff that condemns him. So getting the sequence... Um, wrong uh, about Father Barbara off by six years, well, they just go on to something else. So it, 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 uh, you have to realize that you're not uh, operating with people who are making objections in good faith. And the other thing, Father, is you mentioned about finding information out in that time frame, the 1970s, 1980s, maybe a pamphlet, might be an article in the newspaper if, if one was lucky. But even in that case, if we look at the description of the Archbishop's living conditions, to quote Father Barbara here, when he went to visit him in 1982, he states, the Archbishop lived in a very poor and dirty apartment on the first floor of an old tenant appearance. It was a simple flat that was longer than wide with a small side kitchen. On the right side was a modest bed. In the corner was a table on which he celebrated the traditional rite as codified by St. Pius V every morning. There were many pious images, a pile of pocketbooks, two chairs, and five cats that appeared to be everywhere. As he had only had two chairs, the archbishop sat on his bed, and Father Barber sat opposite him. The room was so small that Father 
Barthé had to place his chair behind the archbishop. End quote. So from Father Barber's account, we can certainly see that Archbishop Tuck was not living in luxury with uh, access even to modern-day media at that time. Sure. It's very, uh, very poor living conditions. And the thing is that, that you also have to ask yourself the question, you know, would he have been interested in keeping up necessarily on all of the church news in France? Because you have to remember, certainly at that point, uh, well, it's still that the uh, whole uh, hierarchy of France was entirely modernist and liberal, and the only kind of uh, their, their, uh, the, the bishop's um, official paper, the, um, the Documentation Catholique, uh, it was all uh, you know, nothing but crazy liberalism. And someone who is opposed to this is not going to keep up um, with uh, all the news, especially if he's he, basically in retirement. We would like to remind you that you're listening to Trad Controversies on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, James Trumper, and I am joined by Father Chikata. Today, we've been discussing Archbishop Tuck and the consecrations done by Archbishop Tuck in the 1980s. We would like to remind you that Trad Controversies is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved. Any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. So, Father, I think that brings us to the three consecrations that we are interested in, the one on May 7, 1981, of Father Guard and... Gerard. Gerard. And the one on October uh, 1981 of uh, Father Zamora and Father Carmona. Could you give us a little bit of background of these men, just maybe a a three-minute spiel? All right. Uh, uh, Gerard Delorier was a Dominican theologian, and he was um, uh, taught at a Roman university at the Angelicum. He was responsible uh, in part for formulating the Pius XII's decree uh, uh, promulgating the uh, dogma of the Assumption. Uh, he uh, also, after the changes of, of, of Vatican II, was very much opposed to them. He was in the same group, as it were, with Archbishop Lefebvre. Uh, Gerard was responsible for writing the document that we now know as the Ottaviani Intervention, the short critical study of the New Mass. Uh, he was a, a doctor of theology. He taught at uh, Archbishop Lefebvre Seminary in Econ, Switzerland. He was one of my professors. He taught uh, De Novissimus and he taught uh, Mariology, uh, and he taught a number of other courses as well. He was what eventually came to be called a, a sedeva contest. So he, uh, when the, the politic at uh, the Society of St. Pius X Seminary changed, Gerard was told he could no longer be on the faculties of sedeva contest. So he went out on, uh, on his own and pursued his apostolate and his ministry. He did uh, writing. And Gerard, uh, who's an uh, extremely devout man, became convinced that for the good of the uh, Catholic priesthood, since it looked like Archbishop Lefebvre was in the process of selling out, that uh, he would um, uh, go to Archbishop uh, Tuck and uh, ask him, ask Archbishop Tuck to consecrate him, Gerard, a bishop. And so he did. And uh, that happened, what did you say, May 5th? Yes. I believe. Uh, 1981. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can see the photos of that. 
and the photos of the Episcopal consecration were published in a magazine, German magazine, traditionalist magazine called Einsicht. And um, so that is the, the story basically behind Gerard. As far as the uh, other two, uh, Carmona and Zamora, they are, were priests from um, uh, Mexico who were part of the Trento movement. Uh, the Trento movement was uh, one of the first traditionalist movements in the world. It was founded by Father uh, Sainz Ariaga, uh, a, a Jesuit who was eventually uh, excommunicated for writing a book talking about the vacancy of the apostolic see. Uh, the uh, Trento was is the proto, the original traditionalist organization in Mexico. Carmona, Bishop uh, Carmona, I know something about uh, Zamora, not much, but uh, Carmona was a, a priest of the Diocese of Guadalajara. He had taught uh, apparently in the seminary. He was the pastor of uh, uh, several important parishes, and he was regarded as a uh, as a very good man and a zealous priest by his fellow priests. So um, his consecration came about when a group of of uh, laymen from um, uh, from Mexico, an uh, influential group of laymen uh, sent a petition to Tuck saying that we need uh, bishops to uh, fight the war against modernism uh, down here in Mexico. These two men are excellent. Could you please uh, consider consecrating them bishops? And uh, Tuck did, to make a long story short. Uh, so they were uh, consecrated in the, uh, the fall, I believe, of 81, and Again, this is something attested to. There are pictures of it um, in the um, in Einzig, um, the and uh, articles of, uh, articles about it in Einzicht. And Tuck issued a um, uh, actually a certificate of consecration. We later discovered attesting to the fact and written in his own hand that he had consecrated these men bishops. So that is the uh, story on Carmona and Zamora. Was there any other evidence of these three consecrations other than the the um, photograph and the uh, sworn testimony of, I believe, Dr. Hiller and Dr. Heller from Germany who were present at all three of these consecrations? Is there any other testimony out there? Well, they, they had a, uh, well, as I say, the... Um, Consecration certificate Tuck wrote in his own hand, and uh, the fact that he, you know, treated these men as bishops. He went to um, uh, later, as we shall see, he went to Rochester, New York, and uh, he had uh, contact with uh, these men that he had consecrated bishops uh, there. He actually went to Mexico at um, uh, during the course of his stay in the New World. Um, and uh, uh, gave a uh, gave a conference with Bishop Carmona uh, present there. So I mean, obviously he considered them to be bishops. So he, he uh, you know, there's there's plenty of of um, uh, evidence for the fact that they were consecrated. I mean, it's 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 idiotic to deny the fact. Uh, you can't. Uh, it's it's uh, absolutely absurd to say that. Well, he didn't do it. But he did, and he wrote a document in Latin attesting to it. So that should be the end of the story. In canon law in 1747, talking about notorious facts, it says facts must be proved unless they are notorious facts, that is, 
unless they are facts that are publicly known and committed in such a manner that they cannot be concealed or excused. <laughs> I'm laughing already. <laughs> so what you have there is that that's the vintage Kelly nonsense canon law argument. And uh, the what uh, that rigmarole refers to is to uh, uh, questions that are involved in ecclesiastical trials. And the, uh, the uh, in other words, like the rules of legal procedure. You know, the federal courts have the uh, rules of um, civil procedure, and they, they have codified rules for uh, conducting civil civil suits, or uh, also they have a, a criminal suits. So this is a, this rigmarole has to do with that, with uh, proving things at court. Well, the court is not in session. And the court hasn't been in session for a long, long time because the apostolic see has been vacant. So what that is, is bringing up stuff like that. That's another uh, Kelly Red Herring argument. And he tried this with us when we were back in the Pius V Society. And uh, uh, it's, it's gibberish and it's, it's, uh, uh, it's nonsense, right? You have a... Uh, uh, Baptism or a consecration certificate uh, that is a is the prima facie proof of the conferral of a sacrament. End of the story. And Archbishop Tuck was again excommunicated for specifically these three consecrations by the Vatican after quote the Vatican did a well-founded inquiry unquote. So uh, even if they weren't notorious prior to that, the Vatican's uh, action obviously made these consecrations notorious and made it public. Yes, of course. And the um, uh, <laughs> if, if you have an investigation and they publicize the, the results of that, uh, how can you say that it's, it's, it's uh, not something that in fact is, is known? So the, the uh, and as we said, we bring up the excommunication thing again, that there's no, you can't incur excommunication for the consecration of a bishop without proper authorization unless you perform the act validly. So it's all, yeah. all of the, uh, uh, everything that surrounds it um, should uh, uh, convince anyone with any sense that uh, there can be no question about the validity of it. If one reads the sacred and profane, Bishop Kelly is constantly stating that there was not enough witnesses, we need more witnesses, but I went to a book called, uh, under the title of Proof of the Reception of the Sacraments by Father Sullivan, and he states in there on page 121, quote, drawing an analogy from canons 779 and 800, Capello declares that the reception of orders may be proved by the testimony of even one trustworthy witness, provided that this does not jeopardize the rights of another party. The fact of one's admission to a given order could be established by the testimony of any reliable official, e.g. the ordaining bishop, one's proper ordinary, the vicar general, the chancellor, or the pastor. Even if the only witness were not one of this character, it seems that his testimony could afford sufficient assurance of the cleric's identity to permit him exercise of the function of his office, unquote. And when I presented this quote to Bishop Sante, because Archbishop Tuck attested, he's the ordaining bishop, he testified 
that he consecrated these men. And here is a, a uh, Father Sullivan commenting on how to identify whether or not a sacrament occurred. And he specifically states that if the witness is the ordaining bishop done over, it establishes it as true. Mm-hmm. And Bishop Sante's response when I, I quoted Father Sullivan was, well, that's just one priest's opinion. <laughs> so, Where's the other is, priest's opinion? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that's where we roll our eyes and look back at the ceiling, Father. Yeah, because yeah, I, I think I so. Found one. Uh, I found one. <laughs> so, the... Um, uh, you all, you can expect to get stuff like that, okay? In other words, a, um, uh, a response like that, that uh, you can always have the uh, opinion that anything you say, nothing you say in favor of Tuck uh, ever works in his favor, okay? Uh, because that's just, well, that's just someone's opinion. But anything I, as a member of the Pius Fist Society, say against him, uh, creates a, a doubt about him, about his character, his reputation, his mental state, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's it's a um, a one way street uh, when it comes to um, when it comes to anything like that. And there is no one. Uh, what what in fact um, Sullivan is talking about is the. Um, uh, again, the introduction of evidence into a into an ecclesiastical trial, or uh, the uh, requiring proof of, say, a priest who wants to come and, and say mass at uh, your church, but he doesn't have, uh, you know, his his ordination certificate with him or something like that. But I mean, uh, if he has pictures of his ordination, um. Uh, you know, in in a Catholic church, or if it's if it's mentioned in a publication, or if he has a, a certificate that's actually signed by the bishop, um, the uh, rational thing to do is to take him at his word. So, Father, we we've established that these concepts. But that's just one priest's opinion. You know, Father, we have a lot of theologians and priests that. Their opinion agrees with the the consecrations took place, and we have yet to see any to the contrary. But moving on from the fact that these consecrations took place, what was one argument against the the tongue consecrations that Bishop Kelly constantly brought up when you were with the society? Well, no, it, it was it, to go back to what we mentioned before was that there's no certificate, and that oh, you have to have a certificate. That's the only proof. And so what I did is I wrote an article called The Validity of the Tuck Consecrations, and I demonstrated that you do not need a certificate to prove it, okay, that that an ordination took place. And then what happened is um, at a certain point when Bishop Mark Piverunas visited uh, Cincinnati, I mentioned this to him, and he said, what? Uh, He said, I have the certificate, he, he said, of course he produced a certificate. So it, it, it turned out that uh, all of Bishop Corona's papers, when Bishop Corona died, had been given to Bishop Piverunas, and yes, indeed, he had the original of a document 
that uh, Tuck had written out in his own hand in Latin, testing to the fact that he had performed the consecrations of uh, Carmona and Zamora, and that these two Germans had, had uh, uh, witnessed a signature to it, and that was that. So the uh, uh, that was the proof that um, supposedly uh, would have satisfied Father Kelly. But of course it didn't, then they went on to another argument. So... Uh, but the, uh, uh, again, as I say, it's a it's a demonstration of uh, bad faith. I don't say that the the younger people in his organization necessarily have that element of bad faith. Um, but um, uh, as far as him and Father Jenkins, I have no difficulty at all saying that. So, Father, once you found the the consecration certificate, which certainly according to Father Sullivan would have been enough to establish, even in a court, an ecclesiastical court. Mm-hmm. that the consecrations took place. Father Kelly raised this objection about no qualified witnesses. We need all these qualified witnesses, not just witnesses, but qualified witnesses to testify to the validity of the sacrament. What mm-hmm. is Father Kelly talking about? Uh, uh, what he did is he fixed on a term in canon law that uh, refers to a certain type of witness in an ecclesiastical trial. So the an example of a qualified witness would be someone who is the record keeper, uh, someone, say, who is the the, uh, chancellor of uh, a diocese, who has in uh, his possession and under his control the official, let's say, ordination records of the diocese. And he um, is his... Uh, so his testimony uh, that, uh, let's say, it's an ordination certificate exists and, and this person, uh, you know, was ordained, that his um, testimony in court has to be uh, accepted as official. But the qualified witness refers to a, a type of ecclesiastical official who conveys certain information in an ecclesiastical trial. What Father Kelly did is he uh, took the term, a qualified witness, and said that, well, for someone to be as qualified as a witness to an ordination, he has to be able to know what the matter, in other words, the external sign, uh, sacramental sign is, uh, and then know the form, which is the essential Latin formula for the conferral of a sacrament. And that's, that is what a qualified witness to a sacrament means. But that is not, that is something that he completely made up. Because otherwise, you would not uh, have any qualified, uh, when it came to, let's say, a baptism, uh, that uh, at every baptism I perform, I would have to have people who are aware of the principles of Catholic sacramental theology uh, to know that I have to pour the water on the head of the baby, and who have people who know that at, at that time I have to say the um, uh, form Ego uh, te baptizo nomine patris et fidi et spiritus sancti. And of course, that is absurd. That is absurd. And um, if you, and then what about? Uh, what about the sacrament of penance? Do we need qualified witnesses for that to be sure that uh, it's uh, uh, valid and to have a, a certitude of validity? Or when I give some of the last rites, uh, does someone have to uh, be present to attest to the validity of what I did? 
So it's absurd, and it's something that Father Kelly has invented. And it's it's, it's, it's found uh, the, his understanding of it is found nowhere in uh, ecclesiastical law. It's it's interesting because the law that Bishop Kelly quotes as requiring quote these qualified witnesses was written by Pope Pius XII on November 30th, 1944, uh, under the name of Episcopali uh, Consecrationis. And while uh, these qualified witnesses in 1944, according to this 1944 document, would have to testify to the matter, form, and intention of the bishop, Father, the matter and form of a consecration of a bishop or the ordination of priests wasn't uh, defined till after that in 1947, uh, sacramentum ordinis. So how could you have witnesses required in 1944 to testify to something that wasn't even defined definitively until 1947? The, the whole concept, it, it, this exemplifies absurdity to the extreme. Yeah, and I think there's a time machine involved again, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> this is the the second time in this uh, second time in this show, and um, uh, on that particular document, uh, the the first document that you mentioned, if I'm not mistaken, does not exactly say uh, that that they they um, uh, are to f- the, uh, that in fact they are to witness to the uh, validity of the matter and the form for the conferral of Episcopal consecration. It's what they, what it, it, um, uh, what they are supposed to do is they are supposed to be, uh, uh, when, when it says they ensure the validity of it, what that refers to is the fact that they are co-consecrators and not simple witnesses. In other words, the uh, two bishops who assist the principal consecrator at an Episcopal consecration uh, recite all of the essential prayers, and uh, in fact recite all of the prayers, essential and non-essential, with the consecrating bishop and also impose their hands. So when there's a reference to ensuring the validity of the consecration, it means that you have three bishops as sort of a backup. That if if one doesn't do it for some reason or messes something up, that uh, there is the person is consecrated by one of the other ones, actually. And they would have to, as co-consecration bishops and true ministers of the sacrament, Father, it would be critical that they follow through on the matter and form because they're actual ministers of the sacrament, correct? Yes, and when, when you talk about ensuring the validity, that's what it means. They're not the um, uh, they're not the uh, sacramental form referees for the bishop who's consecrated, where they blow a whistle and say, "Oh, buddy, you didn't get that right. Let's try it again." Um, so, uh, no, but in the sense that they all recite the prayers together, and that was a um, disputed point. Uh, in the um, uh, discussions of different theologians for a number of years, that are those bishops supposed to um, uh, recite absolutely everything? And when you have just one bishop father, and he's assisted by two priests, the rite requires, or the Vatican requires, that they should fall along in, in, in detail. Uh, why, would, why would the Vatican require that? No, it's it, the... 
uh, again, they're not checkers for validity. Um, they are they're, they're supposed to recite the prayers uh, uh, along with a consecrating bishop, even though they're not bishops themselves. And the um, reason they do that, uh, the, that was decreed, was not to check validity, but for the solemnity of the ceremony. That that you have uh, 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 two uh, 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 clergymen in copes uh, assisting the principal consecrating bishop uh, with the in the performance of the ceremonies, so that they can be done in an impressive fashion. And that is the uh, that's the role when you have uh, two priests. And that's something that's absolutely certain. I, I looked that up before uh, Bishop Piverunis was uh, consecrated and uh, before Bishop Dolan was consecrated as well. So, Father, just to, to summarize this little section here for our listener, uh, the Church is having these priests essentially fall on the right for the purpose of the ceremony. It has nothing to do with checking the validity of the ordaining bishop at any point. So these this qualified witness, having qualified witness to attest to the validity is really just completely made up by Bishop Kelly. There's nothing to substantiate it. Yes, and uh, I know that because I researched it. Uh, in the matter of the, the, the uh, consecrations, the, the Episcopal consecrations or Archbishop Duck, if you'll recall, I was opposed to having anything to do with those people. And uh, that I got into this uh, uh, in essence, to be the to put it to research and to do the opposing position to Father Sanborn, who was uh, sort of on the pro side. But uh, the the directions that uh, Father Kelly had pointed us in this business of qualified witnesses, etc. That this was uh, this I discovered was all uh, uh, complete nonsense. And uh, I discovered that by working my way through several uh, to the canon law and sacramental theology sections of several libraries. So, Father, this requirement for qualified witnesses to check our ordaining minister goes away. Maybe, maybe it stays if we want to play uh, a new game. Maybe we can call it uh, qualified checkers. We'll create a new game there. Uh, but... Uh, other than playing qualified checkers, there's no need for them. And so what else would we need to establish the validity of these of the sacrament? How do we know it's valid? Or is it even necessary to know that the matter in form was confirmed if we know for a fact that the consecration actually took place? And the answer to that question is no, it's not necessary to establish it. Because if you have a Catholic minister... Uh, he is the uh, and he uh, confers a sacrament. The uh, the presumption of the church laws is automatically in favor of validity. So the um, uh, it's with a baptism. Uh, when I perform a baptism and someone asks about for for a baptismal certificate, I don't have to prove that I pour the water on the baby's head and said the form at the same time. And, and sign a form to that effect. Well, the fact that I'm a Catholic minister, that I say that uh, it was performed uh, according to the um, traditional Catholic rite, that's enough. And we accept the validity of all the sacraments on the basis of that. You don't, um, uh, if you get a new parishioner who comes 
um, into the, let's, let's say someone comes into the confessional for the first time and says that, well, he's been at um, the, uh, if we take, let's say, Long Island, where uh, Father Kelly and I operated, and say a new uh, uh, parishioner comes into the confessional and said, well, I've been going to Father DePaul's chapel at Ave Maria, uh, his Ave Maria Chapel in Westbury, and I'm going to come to Oyster Bay. You just say, now, wait a minute. We need proof that DePaul um, uh, had the correct uh, matter for an intention for uh, giving you absolution. You know, uh, otherwise, you know, we, we can't uh, assume that he did it correctly. You end up in the land of absurdity. Uh, if uh, you apply across the board the... Um, principles that um, Pius V Society pretend would apply for the tuck consecrations. Now, Father, Bishop Kelly spends a substantial portion of his book writing about Archbishop Tuck's mental state, his intention uh, in conferring the sacrament. First off, was Archbishop Tuck of sound mind? Yeah, well, this this was the, the uh, like the fallback. I think this is the last uh, argument that uh, Bishop Kelly tried to come up with that uh, after the uh, certificate appeared, um, which uh, he insisted was absolutely necessary and was the uh, would be the, the complete proof for it, then he started to say Tuck was loony. Uh, but uh, first of all, the as far as the uh, conferral of a sacrament goes, it doesn't take much. Okay. It doesn't take much at all. Uh, you have to know who you are and basically and what you're doing. Okay? So you have to have two things. You have to have attention and intention. And um, uh, you have to know where you are. That's attention. And then you have to uh, intend to do what you're doing, performing the sacrament. The normal, um, uh, what's considered sufficient proof of intention for, say, um, uh, mass is putting your vestments on. Uh, that if a priest does that, that's considered a he doesn't have to make some sort of explicit intention all the time. Um, the uh, although it it is good and it would be devout to do so. Nevertheless, simply putting the vestments on is uh, uh, sufficient enunciation of intention. So what you have is. The underlying argument of, of uh, Father Kelly was that, well, uh, you know, there was uh, something wrong with Tuck. He didn't know what he was doing. Okay, he was doing everything in a fog. But obviously that's absurd because he, <laughs> he sat down and he wrote out uh, a certificate for Episcopal consecration in Latin the day after he did it. So that says that, oh, wow, guess what? He knew what he was doing, okay? And he said he did it. And not only that, he's, um, his uh, so-called mental state is sufficient that he can write the darn thing in Latin, okay? Father Kelly could not write a consecration certificate in Latin. I know that. I know that. So uh, what you have is you have this, this obvious uh, evidence of uh, attention and intention. So that's the first point. The, the second point is this, that the people who actually knew him uh, say that the uh, notion 
uh, he, he was somehow mentally impaired is crazy. They said that you have to be mentally impaired to believe that. So Tuck goes to Mexico and he gives a conference. He gives a public conference in Mexico about the situation in the church. So he doesn't know what he's doing. He can't confer a sacrament. Or he spent an hour uh, or a year and a half up in Rochester, uh, New York, and he gave classes to the seminarians uh, up in uh, Bishop Vizelis' uh, seminary. And uh, in the process, tried to learn Spanish. And uh, there's all of these these uh, uh, stories about him, uh, you know, offering mass and then preaching and it being translated into uh, uh, the language of, of uh, whatever people were present. So there's all this this uh, testimony that utterly undercuts this whole idea, and it's people who. Um, uh, saw Tuck say Mass after the consecrations when he came over to the United States and he said it very devoutly and that he sang beautifully. So it's, it's crazy to continue to promote the, uh, the fantasy that um, uh, he didn't know who he was or what he was doing or he was all, he, he was senile, etc., 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 so it, it just it simply doesn't make any sense, and it's an argument that was invented by uh, uh, Father Kelly and by Father Jenkins to avoid the obvious conclusion. And Father, to quote from your article here, Canonist Coronata, uh, discussing virtual intention, the the minimum intention required to confer a sacrament, he says, quote. The common doctrine is this. Virtual intention is necessary and sufficient in the minister to confect the sacraments. Virtual intention, as we have already seen, is an actual intention itself, which is operating along with distraction. Such an intention is certainly present in someone who regularly performs sacramental actions. For example, a priest who goes early to the church, puts on vestment, goes to the altar, celebrates mass, and consecrates a host or host presented to him at it even though he does not think about the intention of consecrating, unquote. Sure, and Coronata, that's the teaching of, uh, of any theologian, any uh, writer on sacramental theology or, or a canon law that you can look up. They all say the same thing uh, as, as uh, regards intention. So you can't challenge, challenge it on uh, the basis of that. And in regards to Father Kelly in his book, The Sacred and Profane, quotes all these individuals saying, well, Tuck might not have been in his uh, right mental state. What I found uh, researching it myself was everyone who personally knew Tuck has testified, sworn, sworn testimony that Tuck knew what he was doing. He was mentally sound. He was interactive, a well-educated, well-versed individual. And all the quotations from Bishop Kelly in his book are just people basically presenting negative doubt. And mm -hmm. in anything, when it comes to a, a court of law, I'm familiar with this, having dealt with el several elderly people, if you're going to make the claim that somebody is mentally incompetent, you have to prove it. The person making that assertion has to put forth hard, indisputable evidence that's ruled upon by medical professionals to prove somebody mm -hmm. is mentally out of it before that person can be considered mentally incompetent. 
the burden of proof is on the person asserting that. Uh, yeah, so yeah, that's exactly it. So what you have is is uh, the, the Pius V Society specifically. Again, I don't tar all of them with this. This is the this is was the the father slash Bishop Kelly problem, is that uh, they have tried to create the opposite presumption that uh, you know you have to prove that uh, uh, you were aware of this, that, and the other thing. And uh, that uh, even the fact that you've written out something in Latin attesting to it isn't enough proof. <laughs> no, Father, I, I would like to touch on it. It's not often talked about, but you often hear from Society of Pius V uh, priests or even in several occasions uh, lay people. Well, we, we have our doubts and, and we can consider Tuck mentally unstable or that he did not do these consecrations. Father, I have a question on, isn't that uh, defaming somebody's character if you're going publicly around saying that he's mentally unstable without positive evidence to that effect? Well, of course. Tuck has been slimed, you know, for 30 years now on, on the basis of something where obviously there's no proof. And um, all of this evidence has uh, been brought forth uh, to show that, uh, you know, he was capable of conferring a sacrament and did confer a sacrament, and yet still you're destroying his, his uh, reputation now with, with all of these old stories. Obviously, that is something that, in terms of the moral law, is, is uh, you know, very wrong. Also, and especially because it's joined in part of the campaign to destroy the reputations of uh, uh, clergy who derive their orders from them. So it's 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 a uh, it's sort of a multiple defamation, as it were. And Father, uh, similar to that, when they accuse Tuck having established the fact that these consecrations took place. And they accuse Archbishop Tuck of maybe he didn't confer them validly. By saying that he did not confirm validly, you are at least implicitly implying, although it seems very specifically you're implying that he committed a sacrilege. Because if a minister doesn't confer a sacrament validly, he commits a sacrilege. Uh, but sure, that's that's uh, that's part of it too. So you have a number of um, grave moral problems that are connected with this. So the, the, in, in, in terms of his, his character, his reputation, etc. And it's actually sinful uh, for a Catholic to accuse someone of sacrilege or call them out as mentally incompetent without any positive evidence to that effect. It's sinful yes. for uh, priests to hold this position. Uh, yes, it is. I say that the, um, as I say, the the younger ones who have been fed this stuff, uh, you know, for uh, decades, uh, I would not certainly hold them as responsible um, for uh, for this because this is what they've been told. But I was told many things by Father Kelly that turned out not to be true once I started doing my own research. And one can only hope that there are clergy in their organization who will do what I did uh, and who will uh, try to investigate uh, the particular issues that I've raised with an open mind, which is what I did. And so, Father, as we wrap up tonight, 
I, I too hope that their priest and their laity listen to the show, go and read Father Barbara's account of Archbishop Tuck, the other eyewitnesses' accounts, and, and truly study this issue so we can stop culminating against uh, Archbishop Tuck, um, this bishop's, he's entitled to his good name. But as we leave these validity checkers in the land of absurdity, is there anything you'd like to add before we close out this episode? Uh, well, uh, simply to say that the way it turned out is is obviously quite unfortunate, and that the issues that were raised way back when in uh, the 1980s when we were trying to puzzle this out, the different questions that were raised have eventually been resolved in terms of the principles of sacramental theology, what is required for uh, to uh, treat a sacrament as valid, uh, the uh, presumptions in favor of uh, the, the uh, validity of uh, the consecrations, the establishment of the fact, the documentation, certainly the, the uh, certificate that uh, Archbishop Tuck uh, uh, issued, uh, all of the different uh, facts that have come to light um, by, uh, about his, his character and his conduct by people who actually knew him. So the fair-minded person should conclude that these difficulties have been uh, resolved and that they are continued simply for um, no reason at all or certainly no good reason. Uh, and that uh, for the good of traditionalists everywhere, uh, they simply need to be put aside now, and um, uh, one has to face the fact that in terms of uh, Catholic theology and the the evidence that we have, one cannot uh, credibly challenge the validity of these consecrations. So the the, uh, divisions that have arisen as a result of this should simply uh, fade away as they well deserve to. Well, I want to thank you again, Father, for coming on and doing this show. I'm hopeful and prayerful that it's very beneficial to our listeners and to all the faithful out there to work through this controversy. But as we head into the Easter season, is there anything going on at St. Gertrude the Great Church? Well, we have the usual full rota of um, Holy Week services, uh, beginning on uh, Palm Sunday with the solemn blessing of palms and the uh, procession. We uh, also uh, have been featuring the, uh, the past 10 or 15 years, uh, someone raises donkeys in the congregation. So uh, we, uh, for the outdoor portion of the procession, we actually have a donkey on Palm Sunday, which I guess is quite appropriate. Uh, for the uh, for the he doesn't get into the church though. Uh, for the rest of the uh, week, we have the uh, offices of of Tenebrae, the very beautiful um, uh, uh, prayers of of Tenebrae on uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and uh, Friday night uh, that are are chanted in the darkened church. We have the uh, mass on mass on Holy Thursday. Uh, to honor the institution of uh, the Eucharist, the uh, adoration of the Blessed Sacrament in the uh, side chapel, the Mass of the, the uh, Pre-Sanctified, and the three-hour service on Good Friday beginning at noon, and 8 o'clock in the morning on Holy Saturdays, the Easter Vigil, um, which lasts generally for about five hours. 
Uh, all of these are uh, webcast live uh, from our uh, SGG Resources website. And uh, if you're if you don't have uh, an opportunity to attend um, Holy Week services in your local traditional chapel, we invite you to do so uh, online at uh, St. Gertrude the Great and uh, join us with uh, that way and be with us uh, in spirit. On uh, Easter Sunday, we have masses at the usual uh, the usual morning masses, seven thirty, nine o'clock, and uh, eleven thirty. And our choir has a, a um, a very uh, beautiful program that uh, they've uh, worked up for that date, uh, some uh, classical uh, polyphony by various authors, and our young organist here, Andrew Richardson, will be uh, playing uh, some uh, wonderful Easter music from the works of Johann Sebastian Bach. So we have a lot going on. Well, Father, thank you again so much for joining us tonight, and I wish you a blessed and holy Easter season. And uh, the same to you and the same to all of our listeners. God bless you all. God bless. If you have any questions for Father Chicotta or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at mail at truerestoration.org, and we will pass along your questions or comments to Father Chicotta. We'd like to take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who help make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contribution, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I'm James Trepper. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.